This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves earnings season just a little bit too much, but not so much that we're going to be boring. Trust us, stick with us. I'm Scott Phillips, and as always, with me is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm exceptionally well because it's earnings palooza, mate. It's all about earnings season. We're exactly halfway through the month as we record this on Thursday. Happy Valentine's Day to our listeners. You'll, that's true. You'll hear this a little bit late, guys, because it'll probably go up tomorrow, I assume, unless, uh, unless our producer Will decides to, to pull a Swifty on us and put it up early. In any case, we're recording this Thursday morning. I'll be on the Gold Coast tomorrow. Not sunning myself. I'm actually working. But in any case, good to be with you. Happy Valentine's Day, mate. Huh, Have you got something organised for your wife? No. You're in trouble. I'm in trouble. I actually just realized it's Valentine's Day when you said so. Dear, oh dear. You've at least got the rest of the day to sort something out. Pretend you're always going to do it. Some (laughs) roses sent to your wife right now is probably a good thing. Uh, I think maybe booking dinner. But I'm helping you out too. See, we're we're, we're all about the love here at Motley Fool Money. Yeah, we are. Definitely for it. Speaking of love... It's time to talk about Telstra. How excited are you, Doc? I am supremely (laughs) excited at at Telstra's awesomely... All right. So we're going to talk about Telstra. We're going to talk about a few other companies and earnings palooza. Been a busy week already this week for for company earnings. Talk about Telstra, car sales, CSL, AMP, Super Retail. Give a sense of the state of the economy, the state of some of our largest and bluest of blue chip companies. We're also going to talk about the fact that CEO killing season, we thought it was over. It's not. It looks like it's not. Another CEO showing the door this week. Or showing himself the door, depending on which uh, version of the truth you like to believe. And we'll talk about a new credit card that most of us can't have. Nobody told me about it. Exactly. <laughs> and we'll do it the full mailbag. All right, Doc, let's get this show underway. It is time to talk about Telstra. And no, not Tesla, Telstra, the better one with extra letters for free. Uh, one of the most profitable companies on the ASX. I know how excited you are by large <clears throat> profits. And so Telstra came out this morning with its earnings. Unfortunately, the first sentence of Jenny Duke's story in the SMH says, Telstra CEO Andy Pence, the telecommunications company, continues to face short-term challenges ahead of an ultra-fast 5G mobile network launch while reporting a profit fall in the first half of 2019. Dear, oh dear. Telstra, go on. I know, you, I, know, I, know, I, know you, I know you've got wonderful, lovely things to say, but I know how much you love the company. Mm. So tell us some nice things about Telstra. Yeah, I, I love the company. I mean, you know, uh, the, the headline I read was different, you know. It basically said 28% drop in first half profits. <sighs> details, details. details. It's, it's all about details, the future. Right? It's all about 5G, haven't I told about, you? It's all about the future, yeah. So, I don't know. Telstra's results. Um, what do you uh, make of them? Anything in particular? I thought they were meh. In my opinion, meh, meh. In my opinion, is I think as as good as it gets. You um, won't see you won't see that in a report from Morgan Stanley or or Goldman Sachs. No, it's it's only at the full. <laughs> <laughs> Delight, delightfully informal as we are. In 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 full full down, we'll oh. say that it was a meh result. So you're not particularly happy about it. The shares are down two percent as we record this on uh, about about twenty to eleven on <laughs> Thursday morning. So the market kind of responding about the same as you. Yeah, I I, mean, I, I had a quick look through actually their long, mm. very long report. At least at, I'll give them credit. You know, unlike many other companies, they actually mm. do a good job of pr- producing a good report, which yeah. you can actually read through. So I had a, da- heaps of information. Heaps of really, information. Really, really heaps of inf- So, you know, credit where it is due. Yep. I think it's really well done, uh, the reports. Anybody who's invested there, I think they should, you know, have a look at the report. But, you know, at a high level, the main issue here was, you know, that they're still suffering from the transition that's happening to NBA. Mm. Um, but you know, I just don't think that mobile is that big a growth area for them. It's Ooh, like two, okay, two percent. You know, was the what's two percent? Oh, for now, sure. But what about five G? Does five G get them so, across the line? I don't think so. So I don't. I don't think any telco 
is going to actually make zillions of dollars from from 5G. I, I think I think I can agree with you there. Yeah. Zillions are probably out of the question. Uh, yeah, zillions is out of the question. <laughs> Even billions, I don't know. They're, actually, they're going to invest okay. a lot on equipment. Mm-hmm. Then they will all compete against each other mm-hmm. to give cheap plans. I really hope there's competition because that's good for the consumer. Right. The consumer is going to get really awesome internet when 5G is mm-hmm. around and they'll I think the real winners are going to be you know those people who actually have apps and stuff and services right, right. that are running on those internets right so I mean these guys are basically a utility company and it expecting that 5G is somehow going to change it from being a utility company to a tech company, which Telstra has tried a number yeah. of times to be. You know, it's part of their T22, whatever they want to call mm-hmm. it. Right? So it's always T22. Like it's always in five years, will be something great. So <laughs> I, I, I am willing to put my money <laughs> and say that in five years, Telstra will remain Telstra. <laughs> and nothing is going to change. And it's going to be a telco. And it's going to be a utility. And it's going to, you know, generate a good amount of cash flow and it'll be able to pay dividends. But, you know, anybody expecting serious growth here, yeah. Um, you know, they're likely not going to get it. That's, right, that's gonna, my take. We're going to keep these short because we have got a bit to get through. Mm. I'm going to just give you a quick rejoinder, which is, I think that's, uh, look, I think, I don't think, well, the company probably wants to, us to think it's going to be a tech company. I don't think the investment case relies on us accepting that directly. I think the shares are cheap enough right now. I actually expect 5G will gain them some market share in mobile. And I think, although I could be wrong, unless they change something fundamental about the NBN, I actually expect Telstra to win back customers, higher margin customers back from the NBN, back to the 5G network. The the sale of 5G uh, wireless kind of modems, the kind of Wi-Fi devices you can have in your home or take with you, all of a sudden it's going to not be particularly sensible to have NBN if you can take your mobile with you, if you get better, faster speeds. I know at home my 4G connection is about two and a half times the speed of my NBN connection, which is weird enough. And so at some level, uh, I do expect that 5G uptake to be particularly impressive. And I think at that level, Telstra is worth more than it is worth today. I don't think it's going to be a high-growth company. It's not going to be a tech company, as you say, with tech multiples and tech growth. Um, but I think Telstra is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. And I think 5G will probably lead that charge as it, as it stops losing business from landline and gets mobile growth through number of services. And frankly, the, the price, the average price people are paying as they transition from a cheaper mobile plan to a, all you can eat was close enough to that um, 5G wireless plan. I think it's going to lead Telstra's growth into the future. It's pretty bullish. It almost calls for a bet. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't take more of your money, mate. What, what, uh, well, well, you know what? We'll hold that over. We'll talk about terms. We'll talk about terms during the week, okay. and we'll come back next week with a bet, uh, okay. just to keep the thing show, the show moving. All right, Modly full money. Mate, speaking of moving, mm-hmm. how's this for a segue? So moving, Ooh, driving, cars, car sales. Car hey, sales. hey. Hello. I'm a natural. Um, mate, car yeah. sales were out this week, <laughs> and results were, were a bit disappointing. The market wasn't very happy. It's all about display advertising. The insurers, the finance companies, the car dealers aren't paying for the old banner display ads as much as they were. People still listing their cars Mm. for sale, but a very large chunk of sales come from that display ads, and they're down because, frankly, people aren't selling as many new cars as they were. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's maybe it's symptomatic of the economy or something. But, yeah, so people are not, you know, people who are buying $30,000 cars mm-hmm. are now maybe buying $25,000 cars. People or not who are, buying cars at all. Or maybe not problem, buying right? cars. Or maybe they're instead of buying a new car, they're buying a used car. And if they were buying mm-hmm. a used car, they're keeping the used car longer. Right. Um, I yeah, think that's the, that's that's to the, me, that's the driver, yeah. That's the driver. So I think you can tell when you look at the earnings release and the first thing they talk about is international growth. <laughs> <laughs> look over there, over there. <laughs> look over there. Look in South Korea and Brazil. We are doing 
well. Which is so, impressive, by the which way. Which is which is good. You know, I, I, I say, you know, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm saying it in, in, a, in a half, in a half like a joke. Uh, but I mean, it is great that you know they're going elsewhere and have acquired different things and are yeah. trying to do. You know, they have tried to address the situation, but yeah, the dependence still in the core business is here, and and they're feeling the pain. Yeah. Plus, the pain around the leasing and financing and mm-hmm. is you know is is also showing. Um, so some weakness there. I mean, what what I didn't like about it was the revenue uh, growth was was actually pretty good, mm. uh, but the the operating profit growth was was not that good. So you know, they're not getting really leverage out of it. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I so, think, but but on. yeah, okay. The company is very leveraged. I think this is what many people get wrong about both domain REA and car sales. That's not both. That's all three. Um, which is. The number of listings won't necessarily change when it comes to tr- the volume of, of stuff going around, but the premium products that people are paying for, whether it's display advertising on car sales, whether it's those so-called bump listings, the premium listings on, on demand and REA, that's what will come down if people start to figure the market might be weaker than they perhaps had previously thought. Yeah. And so that, that's that's the bit. I, I, want, I want people to be a little bit careful. Now, I think car sales are still a buy, by the way, and I think, for the record, REA is a hold. Um, just to put that on the on the table, there are recommendations at Motley Fool Share Advisor. Um, so being very clear about that, I don't own either stock. Um, but I think in that case, you've got to be a little bit careful. I, I still believe in the long term story, but in the short term, just just have a just just think cautiously about people saying, "Oh, people will still sell houses. People will still sell cars." Yes, they will. But how much will they pay to sell those cars and those houses? Mm. That's what's going to crimp margins if it happens. If I may quickly add one more thing, I think the the phenomenon of of ads moving to things like Gumtree and uh, you know Facebook's marketplace that's very real. That's and that's, I think maybe gathered steam. Mm. Again, I don't have any data to prove that, but you know this is all anecdotal. Just looking at stuff, there's a lot of car ads now on Gumtree. It's like unbelievable, yeah. and and you can bump up stuff, and you can do all you know pay premium, high listings, and things like that. So. I'm bearish on that as an idea, but I, but I take your point. It's definitely a risk for car sales and REA. Yeah. Modly full money. Mate, um, this is one of my favorite headings of the week. Mm-hmm. Market draws blood as CSL fails to beat high expectations. Again, that's from the SMH. So the company <laughs> the company had a, a $1.7 billion profit for the first half, lifted its full year earnings guidance, and still the shares fell. And this is the price you pay for high expectations. Mm. I want to say the price you pay, frankly, the price shareholders pay, because the company doesn't win or lose, right? It's just a collection of shareholders. The market is so used to expecting wonderful things from CSL that when they're just simply very good, the market ends up disappointed. The shares fell meaningfully when the when the earnings were released. Mm. Um, what do you make of CSL? I mean, 11% growth in revenue, right? This is, for, for a very, very big company, this is very impressive. I have to say, for what it's worth, we've avoided recommending it at Share Advisor recently because of those high expectations. To to grow at the historical rates from bigger and bigger bases is just incredibly tough, right? At some point, you max out the available market. What did you make of CSL's results? So yeah, so I think you've you've covered most of the bases here. I mean, I think the market probably was expecting that they would uh, do mm-hmm. an upgrade to the profit guidance, which was not there. I mean, they said they will hit whatever the one point nine billion that they said they're going to hit, mm. which is a pretty big number. Um, um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think the the franchise they've got on, you know, the the blood products mm. is, is pretty solid product, you know, solid franchise. And then, you know, they've got the stuff going on with these influenza vaccines and so on. And that's that's really yeah. doing well. Yeah. So 10% growth in revenue, you know, it's not a lot. No. Well, uh, it depends, right? It's pretty good for most companies. It's not it's not tech growth size. Yeah. But most companies most companies yeah. are happy. But, but, but I would growth. say that you know for a biotech like a, you know this size biotech, it's 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 modest. I wouldn't say this is, is huge. But yeah. again, if it's, it's stable, I think the stability of that growth is what matters, and yeah. I think that's what you get with this you know blood product group. Um, the the price to earnings ratio has come down. 
Yeah, a still bit. on 32 times earnings, last I checked. It's 32 times earnings. I mean, a couple of things here. You're getting, um, you're getting international earnings, a lot of international earnings. Yep. You're getting diversification. Mm-hmm. You're getting a puny dividend, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, less than 2%, I would say. Yep. Um, yeah, like I mean, it's not quite in the buy range for me yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, if if it had fifteen percent revenue growth and it was at you know thirty times earnings, I would I would I would think because maybe some leverage would give them you know higher right. earnings growth, maybe right. in, you know in the mid teens to you know twenty percent range or so, something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I still can't work out whether if you think about the, the, the compound growth, we love compound growth, but when you get to a certain size. Can a blood products business become that much larger than it is today in 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 compound terms over five or ten years? I just I just don't know how it does it. I don't margins are already pretty high. Growth is is, is decent. I mean, ten percent growth when you're that big is is actually pretty impressive to actually generate that much more revenue yeah. year on year. You've got to find more people to treat, more products to sell, whatever. At some level, you kind of just run out of runway, don't you? Yeah. Well, you 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 do and you don't in the sense that there's also you have to you have to value the pipeline mm. of the of the products that have got in the making, yeah. right? So there's so what they're getting is is from their existing product line, right? And if they can actually get another blockbuster product mm. up and running. So you have to see how effective their R&D is, really. Mm, mm. And, that, and that really matters for um, biotech companies. Modly full money. From the sublime to the something else, I'm going to give you two numbers. Mm-hmm. $4 billion of fund outflows. In other words, people taking $4 billion away from a fund manager. Boom. Yeah. And profit falling 97%, mm-hmm. which kind of leaves about 3% left from last time. If I gave you those two numbers, what company would you think of? AMP. AMP. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, and there, there may be some people listening who are long-suffering AMP shells. If that's yeah. true uh, of you, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, but seriously, mate, this is just a business that is hemorrhaging in a big, big way, right? So $4 billion lost during the quarter, higher than the $1.5 billion it lost in the previous quarter. Yeah. The company's saying it expects a similar level of outflows in the first quarter of this year. Yeah. Add that all together, that's close enough to $10 billion bucks of money yeah. lost. Now, when they clip the ticket on a proportion of all that money in or out of the fund, if I can say anything positive, it's that the Royal Commission didn't make AMP split itself up, which, frankly, I would have done, as I said last week. But what... <laughs> What, what can we say about AMP's result and, and, frankly, its kind of future outlook? Yeah, I mean, the Royal Commission didn't have to do anything. It's all happening automatically anyways. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so uh, it, the future doesn't look nice. Mm. I mean, it, it really, there's lots of dark clouds and mm-hmm. really dark clouds here. Um, the outflows, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, among the traditional managers, AMP is one of the hardest hit in terms of outflows of funds, right? Yep. And they're clipping the tickets on it. On the other hand, people like, you know, Macquarie Group, for example, are mm-hmm. still leading in terms of fund inflow. Yeah. So there's really two 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 classes here, but I, I think you know all these scandals and the in you know, the performance in the Royal Commission and so on. I think has you know probably is going to accelerate fund outflow from them to other platforms, be it you know the likes of Macquarie or other independent platforms. You've got to think so, right? Like yeah, if I mean, you're a financial planner, how do you how do you with a straight face say to your client, I think you should put money in AMP? Yeah, it's very very difficult. The only right? people they've got left are the AMP's own in-house planners yeah. who are. Who are a very conflicted, and b if the Royal Commission's recommendations are taken, they're going to have to say to their customers, "So I'm not independent, and I'm not unbiased, yeah. but still, I think you should take my advice." It's, yeah. a, it's a tough road. It's to a hope. very, very t- yeah. So I think that it's really, really difficult spot. I mean, if you know, one solution for them might be to actually sell or spin off their. Uh, Mm. Uh, wealth management business. <laughs> then like, I don't know what is left. Then right. Well, I mean, the, thing. It's the so, life insurance is gone. It's so dramatically ingrained <laughs> that it, it, its entire business model relies on it being an integrated financial services yeah. company. If you split it up, I don't know how either survives. Yeah. This was a this was a sixteen dollars share price back in two thousand and eight. 
It's what, like Eleven years later, two dollars thirty. Oh, that got hurt. And it's just been, you know, again, the worst thing is about a year ago when it was almost six dollars. People said, "Oh, it's already lost," you know, so much, <laughs> almost two thirds. How much further can it fall? The answer mm. is another sixty-five, seventy percent. Mm. So, just been a very ugly story. Uh, look, maybe there's some value there for value hunters, just because at some point, if something's bombed out enough. It doesn't have to do much right, maybe to get some sort of revised, you know, evaluation from from the market. So if you kind of desperately deep value, I can so see why people might go cigar there. butt type of thing. Ah, almost, but, but you you can get burnt. You know, if the if the fire is still there, you're you're likely to get burnt. So. Amen. Amen. Modly full money. Let's go to the fifth of our, our five. We're going to cover this week, mate, with super retail now. Super retail. I've I've been looking at both this and JB Hi-Fi in particular um, in the last couple of weeks. Just as some sort of view on what's happening in the economy, you mentioned car sales before and the fact that maybe it talks about what's happening in the economy. To some degree, I don't own shares of either JB or Super Retail. The Motley Fool does own shares of Super Retail. Um, but broadly speaking, I was kind of interested to see these companies because they're to some degree, I wouldn't say necessarily bellwethers, although JB Hi-Fi might be, but just some sense of actually how is the physical economy really going? What's actually happening out there? Um, to some degree, how much people are spending or not spending. I have to say this morning's results were pretty decent. When you look at a retailer, the first thing I always do is go straight to the like for like or same store sales, um, depending on what uh, what the company likes to call them. The idea is basically you can open more stores and get growth. That's easy. Anyone can do that. Um, if you've got five stores and you open 10, you double your sales. You look like a genius. Um, all you're really doing is opening more stores. What you really want to know is are the stores you already have getting more people to spend more money year after year? And so far for super retail, with the exception of their raise outdoors business, they've had decently positive like for like sales. Somewhere between 1.4 and about 2.1, I think it was, per brand. So these guys own super cheap auto. They own Rebel. They own uh, MacPack, which is the old raise outdoors. Airmart. Uh, super Airmart. Super Airmart, yeah. So, you know, this is these are, these are um, uh, not exactly covering the waterfront. They're kind of specialized to some degree. Uh, but between that and JB Hi-Fi, I've got to say, man, I'm, look, I'm an optimist anyway. And as you rightly say, car sales on the other side of the ledger. But I was kind of quietly kind of happy to see that the consumer is still spending. These guys are still getting people to spend more. While there are signs of maybe a consumer slowdown, I thought the results were pretty credible. And for super retail, I think, again, in every one of their banners, though I could be wrong, I have to have a check, but in almost all of them, if not all of them, their same store sales actually increased in the last eight weeks or six weeks relative to the last half. In other words, the same store sales growth is accelerating, which, again, it's hard to look at that and not think, well, maybe there are some hot signs of hope, some reasons for optimism when it comes to the Australian economy. Maybe I don't I don't follow follow super retail closely, but maybe you know I'll call it a two two stage problem. We're in stage one mm. where people are not spending big bucks. Yeah. So you know they're not spending, they're not buying a new house, they're not investing in property, they are not buying a new car. Mm. Right. I mean you know you go to JB Hi-Fi and you buy like an HDMI cable. How much does it really cost? <laughs> and, and it gives you a television to watch. Oh, they're know. still getting growth on last year though. I think that's that's What's fair. So, but if so they're buying you know, one last year, they're buying two this year. There's there's something positive. About uh, so that's that's positive. But I think you know that's, it's smaller. You know, small average purchase size and all all of those sort true, of things. So, and and you know, Rebel. I mean, you know, you'd go to Rebel and buy whatever mm. is you know Under Armour shirts on discount or whatever it is, mm. right? Um, so if if you have you know or a Nike shirt on discount or whatever it is, I mean, so you know, there's a lot of discounting that goes on on those stores. Um, but yeah, I mean, the consumer is still spending. It's not the consumer you has. Are, the you pocket. are finding despair in the face of optimism, Doc. I'm just giving you positive numbers, and you're telling me reasons why it can't possibly be well, true. Come well, on. well, you know, you can use uh, zip pay, <laughs> after pay, and every other type of pay exactly. to buy stuff, right? Yes, so, yes. Uh, but you know, it's it's helping actually these um, these small spends there go. By, by, by bringing it in forward. So, so, yeah. we're, so we're all positive, we're optimistic, we're hopeful. Maybe. <laughs> Motley fool money. 
Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, last week we talked about CEO killing season and I don't know if I thought it was necessarily over, but I wasn't thinking about, I wonder what will happen next week. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, we're talking about it again because another CEO walked that very familiar, very well-worn plank straight off the edge into the abyss while the company hopes to right itself. The market wasn't very happy. The company, of course, is Experience Co. Used to be called Skydive the Beach. Does a lot of those skydiving um, activities, the, the, the businesses around the country. It lost its CEO, I think, one other executive too, um, in the last week. Shares fell, I want to say, by about a third on the news, and it came with an earnings downgrade. That's kind of a, uh, that's a triple threat, right, in all the worst possible ways. So, and again, that's on the back of the, the NAB CEO going, a whole lot of other CEOs. Who else went last week? There was a, there was a mountain of them. Yeah, Catapult. That's right, Catapult mm-hmm. CEO went. Um, what happened to the experience, came, mate? What, what, what's going on? And, and was the CEO pushed? Did he jump? Was it worthwhile? What's, what's actually happening? So is, is is this basically a tel- Telstra, uh, you know, punchback from your, your site? <laughs> no, you know? no, no, no. So no. experience experience co is a company on on the uh, on the extreme opportunities scorecard, right? Uh, and and so was Catapult, and mm-hmm. you know we've had two CEOs. You know maybe this is the thing. Oh, if man, you're an extreme yeah. opportunity scorecard, you your CEO goes. Um, <laughs> start start polishing your CV. Uh, start polishing your CV. Um, so yeah. Uh, the news was not good, but mm. I mean, maybe the news was uh, in the making for a while because right. you know they've had um, a couple of downgrades. They had a weather-related downgrade mm. not too long ago. They had reforecast the guidance, mm-hmm. um, and then now they're again basically reforecasting the guidance. Right. right? So sounds ugly. Uh, it sounds ugly, and it is one of those things. You know, if if your business is dependent to some extent on whether people can skydive or not, because and that depends on the weather, mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't really try to. Uh, forecast because you know even the you it. know uh, people at the you know the Bureau of Meteorology even they can't forecast <laughs> <laughs> what's going to happen in a year. So Mate, I, y- you really need to have uh, you know more skills than bomb. <laughs> don't don't get me started on bloody management forecasting. So, so, it's, the, it's the absolute biggest waste of time in corporate well, Australia. But no, but maybe if you run Woolies, it's okay. <laughs> oh, even then, they still don't get it right. Yeah, but but I mean you know. You could get it in the ballpark, but you oh, know here, bother. where's the benefit? Here, the weatherman anyway. would refuse. <laughs> so, so I think that's the problem. That's, uh, I mean, company CEOs exist to make weathermen look good, doc. Yeah, I mean, so it was unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so a downgrade. I mean, the company's still generating operating profit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still one of the largest. Uh, you know, there are some bright sides. Uh, oh, okay. If or bright spots, that still they did well on the the skydiving side. So the, what really is not working well for them is the stuff that they've acquired in Northern Queensland, oh, okay. which is all adventure tourism related diversification Um, do you think or teething problems well could be both you know again it's it's hard to tell so you'll have to look at the you know half year results and be on the conference call to tell more Mm. uh, from what we could tell that you know again it it could also be the case that you know you have companies which try to grow by acquisition and growth by acquisition is really tricky you Mm. really need to know what you're doing and it's really hard so it's a, it's on hold for us now. So what's the verdict though? CEO deserved to go, walked the plank, got pushed. Would you have got rid of him? What's what's going on there? Well, I think it's fair. If if you know if the CEO, well, it said that CEO resigned, so I'm not going to speculate. I mean, probably he was mm-hmm. let go, or you know, he decided to resign, whatever it is. Yep. I mean, you know, but, um, but clearly it's related to the performance, right? It looks like it's related to to the performance, and and I think if the board took the call that they they decided to replace, and they also asked, it looks like the the founder. 
um, and uh, executive director is also taking a you know step back and right. basically so it's basically the case where you know it appears like you know you founded a good business you did some acquisitions but you know maybe it's hard to actually manage a small business that you used to run versus a you know you want to run a you know an enterprise that's national right. and and growing it's a really hard thing to do and maybe so next level CEO required a, a professional CEO hopefully. Um, it's going to be a hard challenge to find someone for these sort of things, right? So it's a, it's, you'll have to see what happens. And what odds do you give me that we're not talking about this next week? Is there another CEO in the gun, do you think? Are we, are we going to have to come back and say killing season's been extended or do we, or do we think you this know, might be the end of You know, with my luck, maybe we will. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to put any money on it, um, but we'll see. We will. I, I, I'm, I, I'm hoping it's not going to happen, but, you know, we don't know. If there is a positive for investors out there, chances are, you know, confession season is what we normally call January, where people get out ahead of this sort of news. Experience Co. remarkably late when we were trading halt, then released some numbers, which is kind of in the middle of earnings season. Mm. Obviously, just come come to the conclusion that, you know, they're going to have some bad numbers to report. Um, for the most part, though, most of the bad news should be out, at least the, the kind of market disappointing bad news. Is that fair to say in terms of earnings updates or confessions we're going to have? So for most of the bigger companies, I think that's true. For I think right. for the smaller companies, they all try to report it the last day, right? <laughs> and they, maybe they've just started. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the problem. If you're a really small company with a $100 million market cap, you are actually doing your accounting right now, using an accountant who's right across the street from you, right. and then trying to, you know, then you're trying to do your numbers. So I think that's that's the problem, right? I mean, many of these companies are really small and therefore, by definition, risky. All right, Buckle up, there might be more to come. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, we're used to companies who try and sell us stuff. You can't walk down the street, turn on your computer, watch TV, uh, you know, you're getting text messages on your phone. Everyone's trying to tell you, sell you something. This week, though, we got news of Qantas releasing a new product that they're telling us we can't have. In fact, more than 97% of us don't get to have this particular product. Now, it's pretty unusual for a company to come out and say, you can't have this. What is it? It's the new Qantas Titanium credit card. There's, there's enough precious metals left. They can call it. They've got gold and platinum. Now, titanium, I don't know what comes next. I don't know if it's a uranium or, or yeah, molybdenum or something. Maybe something out of the galaxy. You're, you're Andromeda. The you're the scientist here. Give me, give yeah. me, a, give me a element that's rare. And no, you, you just go to the universe and you go to the next universe. <laughs> it's like Andromeda card or something like that. So that's going to come Star next. Wars. So Qantas this week have released their titanium card. And here's the good news for all of us. Well, bad news, good news. It depends what you look at it. We're not invited. You have to earn more than $200,000 a year for Qantas to accept you as an owner, possessor, uh, maybe a borrower. For the Qantas Titanium credit card. And they're going to charge you 1200 bucks a year for the privilege. That is the annual fee for this card. That's phenomenal. It, apparently, some of the some of the benefits, they say it's going to be the highest earning card in terms of points per dollar spent. They're also going to give you two flights a year. Well, 10% off two flights a year. 10% off for 1200 bucks, And some departure lounge invitations. So, Doc, let, let's just say that I'm, I'm very generous and I managed to get you another pay rise of... A meaningful sum. Are you going to take up the Qantas Titanium credit card? So I'm going to start first by saying that, you know, I did not know of this until you mentioned this this morning. <laughs> so so the couple of thoughts came to my mind. A, that, you know, you need to give me a pay rise. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, Won't be that, uh, yeah, well, I, yeah. I guess so. Number two, <laughs> that Qantas knows that I don't make enough money. Oh, that, oh mate, they, they, I didn't, so, I didn't so get a letter either. Don't worry about that. I did not know about this. <laughs> I had not heard about this. And no email 
and I'm a loyal Qantas card user. You know, I like you know, I bank all the Qantas points and stuff. So. Qantas is your preferred airline? It's my preferred airline. You know, all my points go to Qantas. And they're still you know, looking after you. This is I, the weird thing about this. this. Is, yeah. It, the, but, uh, you know, I'll say this. I'm actually happy that they didn't tell me. I, there's <laughs> no way on earth I'm paying them 1200 bucks for a credit card. It doesn't matter what it comes with. There's no way they can get 1200 bucks. Not even for the departure lounge invitations? Well, that's a, off a couple of flights. Twelve hundred bucks is almost the cost of an iPhone. I know. And there's no way I'm buying. iPhones no, are bloody expensive. I've mentioned that before. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, well, you know, uh, that's another thing. Uh, this is this is just this is a. F- I love frequent flyer points. I love I love flights and flying. I think, you know, in terms of oh, I love doing it, but if, from an economics perspective, from a behavioural finance perspective, you can kind of leave common sense at the door when it comes to airlines, right? The amount of money people. So you think about flying to, let's say, LA, right? 13 hour flight, give or take. Mm-hmm. You can get there probably for a thousand bucks return, something like that on a good day. People will pay, instead of the thousand bucks, three thousand or five thousand, eight thousand dollars, depending on what class you want to fly, to fly to LA. And if you put that back into an hourly rate, the extra money people will pay to, to lie flat for 12 hours, it's money you wouldn't spend on anything else. If you said to somebody else, here's a thing that costs a thousand dollars, but for a slightly better experience, you pay an extra seven grand on top of that, people would look at you like you were crazy. If I if I offered you the the, the iPhone X for fifty hundred bucks and the iPhone X plus one for eight thousand, people are like I'm not paying that. That's ridiculous. I'm mm. doing that. They might do a couple of extra things, but that's not worth it. But for some people, this this prestige, this status idea of premium economy, business first class, we just lose all of our sense and start throwing money at things. And it's kind of the same with with these credit card status symbols, right? The the Amex, what was the Amex? Was it the Platinum card? There's a Centurion card with Amex that's by invitation only. It's like the Cornish Chairman's Lounge, same kind of idea. These things are, are just, as soon as you put a credit card status symbol or a flight in front of people, all the usual common sense, behavioral finance, good things that we do go completely out the window and people go a little bit nuts. That's true. I'm just still de- depressed that you know, there's a card like that. <laughs> uh, and, and well, that's the other thing, right? So I, I, I oh, and, and, and I'll, I'll just on. say one more thing. Yep. You know, a lot of people on in, in the pointy of the plane, they mm-hmm. you know they they are basically flying because the company has paid for it, right? So I mean, yeah, you know, true. if somebody's paying for it, uh, you know, hey, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. Or it's an, if it's you know free upgrade or something, I'll take it. Why, why oh, t- no, I think that's and that's absolutely true. In, in that in those senses, I, I agree. But if, but even the thing, to, the company would pay that much. Like, Ian, you think about it. Okay, let's say we're flying to LA, thirteen hours. We, we don't fly business class, put it that way. We certainly don't fly first class. When a company's going to pay them, I, I just can't, on, on an ROI basis, the sheer dollar value of that, put it the other way. If you said to someone, you can fly business class or you can have five grand in your back pocket from the company, how many people you're going to fly business versus pocketing the five grand? So it's kind of just- I think 90% are going to take the money. Right. It's, it's just, it's just <laughs> as it, when people go to flights or, or, or credit card status points, it just goes completely nuts. And I, you know, I wrote this morning, I basically said, look, there's an old saying that back in the old days when, when Carrie Packer was still alive, that you didn't want to be on the other side of a deal with KP because you knew he was getting a pretty good deal. Mm. It's kind of like that with credit card companies, right? It's like, you know, Groucho Marx said, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me. I kind of feel like that with credit cards. If they if they're chasing you to to, to spend twelve hundred bucks to buy this new Qantas Titanium credit card, guess what? They're getting the good end of the stick on this one. And so yes, you can feel good. People will do it by the way because they want the prestige of handing the card over, and the shop assistant or the person beside them in line going, "Wow, that's a Titanium card." It's a uh, I, well, well. Hopefully, out of this, you know, it keeps Qantas out of bankruptcy or any such thing. So that's <laughs> well, good. So here's the thing. So it's good for Australia. You know, we have got we'll, we'll have an old airline that's not going to go bankrupt. <laughs> speaking of, so speaking of that very quickly. Qantas make a quarter of their profit from their frequent flyer scheme. A quarter. $400 million a year from, from this exact 
kind of thing writ large, right? So it's going to be now five hundred million. It's an <laughs> probably. It's, an, it's just an extraordinary amount of mm. money. I mean, th- these guys are closer to being a frequent flyer scheme that happens to fly <laughs> airplanes rather than an airline company with a frequent flyer scheme. This is one of the biggest profit generators for them overall. Mm. It's just, and if you think about that, it's. Uh, it is also, too, from an investing angle very quickly, something that we should look at when we look at companies and anyone should look at is where is the value being generated? Mm. If you'd said to somebody, hey, where does Qantas make its money? I reckon, what, one in 20, one in 30, one in 40 people would say, oh, in the frequent flyer scheme. And if you, if you, if you study Qantas closely, you know, right? But even, even for seasoned investors who aren't following the airline space at all, and we tend not to, if, you, if we ask the, around the office, how much money does Qantas make as a proportion from its frequent flyer scheme? I don't reckon too many people would say 25%. It's yep. just a, a 10% maybe idea. at max. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Just phenomenal. So it's always worth, as, a, as an investor, think about areas of hidden value or, or maybe just understanding better. And you think, well, quantum money from flying planes, well, kind of, but it makes a whole lot of money from something else you would otherwise wouldn't necessarily include. And so we think about the valuation, the investment opportunities, the growth opportunities, always worth being very careful and just understand exactly where it makes its money rather than where you think it makes the money. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, we've got to dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. This is one of our favourite segments, and judging by the correspondence we get, one of the favourite segments of our listeners too. As always, you can email us at info at fool.com.au or hit us up on Twitter. We're at the Motley Fool AU. I'm at TMF Scott P, and Doc is at Anirban Mahanti, A-N-I-R-B-A-N-M-A-H-A-N-T-I, Anirban Mahanti. You can get us. Here's up with a question. We love hearing. We love interacting with you. Again, even for those who aren't on Twitter, I get it. But seriously, give it a go. It's actually pretty cool. I don't own shares, by the way. You don't own shares on Twitter, do you? Uh, I have some short puts. Very good. So, um, you know, a platform worth worth investing in, uh, worth investing, worth being part of. Um, we can argue with Doc about this invest and worth investing in a different time. All right, so the first question, mate, we've got a couple we want to get through because we do love hearing from you. And while we're busy with earnings season, we do want to cover some of those questions as well. So got a, got a, uh, a question uh, from Giuseppe who starts by saying, uh, insert suitable praise for the awesomeness that is Scott and Doc. Uh, I appreciate that. That's very, that's very kind. That's of you. great. Um, I, I love, I love questions that start like that. It's well, awesome. The other good thing is just that he's obviously listening because he knows that we do yeah. laugh about the fact that to get a question on this podcast, you have to speak nicely of us and yeah. You know, we up we should up it and we should say they should share it with one person <laughs> that they really love. You and know, send us some money. And I'll, I'll share it with two people. Send me some money. You don't have to send it to three people. Come on. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, he says, yes, and of course, I'm a paid-up member of a few services. Thank you, Giuseppe. With all this talk of mortgage brokers going around at the moment, do you think it will spread to other similar services, such as insurance brokers? Now, Giuseppe's question comes on the back of the Royal Commission. Mortgage brokers are in the gun. Um, at the moment, it seems like if Labor does win the election, as they're favoured to do, it will be the end of mortgage broker commissions. And if that was the case... Not going to be too many mortgage brokers around. And the question Seppi asks is, okay, let's assume that's going to happen. What about insurance brokers? What comes next for them? Have any views? Well, yeah. Well, again, I think independent advice is important there, right? Mm-hmm. But I think most of the insurance, I mean, you know, insurance is sold by your big banks and so on mm-hmm. as well, and, and, you know, your you know, accounting firms and things like that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean... I don't really have strong views on this. Uh, but I think insurance, again, Australians on average are underinsured mm-hmm. compared to other parts of the developed yeah, I think world. It's fair to say. So, um, 
Maybe it's not that big a problem yet, <laughs> because you know uh, we have a love, uh, we have a strong appetite for uh, investing in property and things like that. But maybe not a strong appetite yet for insurance um, products. Um, so maybe it's not that big a deal. <laughs> Let's uh, yeah. Look, I think we know insurance commissions are going away. Um, that does put more pressure again on insurance brokers, like mortgage brokers, to find a way to basically justify their existence. And if they have to charge us fees rather than getting a kickback from the insurers. I say kickback, not actually in a, in a nefarious way, just in a commission type way. Um, it makes it hard, right? So yeah, look, I think just happy to your to your question. I do think the brokerage world is un, is going to you know undergoing a big shakeup, and I do agree completely with you, Doc. I, I've got to say, I'm I really am am quite torn on the mortgage broker and the insurance broker problem. We want people to get an independent advice. We want them to want that, but we know that we've talked about this before. The behavioural realities of people actually putting their hand in their pocket. If you could spend two to save ten, would you do it? Well, you should. Are most people going to? Well, probably not. And again. Does that mean you end up with worse outcomes, with worse insurance policies, no insurance, under insurance, as you say? I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable reality. Now, I don't know how we fix it, by the way. I don't know how we um, uh, come up with a model that allows people to make sure they are appropriately um, insured, they have appropriate mortgage advice, they have appropriate um, understanding of the market, so they're getting the best deal without that conflict of who's paying the piper. So, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm torn, mate. I, I'm almost I'm almost in favour of a halfway house where the government standardises the payments. Um, so that you can only get uh, you get a kickback from the insurer, but the, insur- the kickback is the same no matter which insurer you go with or which which mortgage you take up. Mm. Which in other in other words, there is no incentive to recommend one product over another product, and there's no insur- no incentive to increase the amount of insurance in dollar terms. If you get a hundred bucks per insurance policy or a thousand bucks per mortgage, and there's no incentive there to push people into a different product or to get them to borrow more or be more insured because you're getting a larger kickback. I think that's what I would do if I was given the choice. It does mean more regulation, but I think. That's probably the least of all the evils. No, you could still, you know, the the company could say you sell more of my products, right? But that's what you just you just limit it. You, you, the company as a as a, but again, you're still incentivizing. You, you're still to, getting to the same particular yeah, company, yeah, right? So yeah. I, I would say, no matter what product you sell, you get one off fee from the insurer or the bank or the mortgage provider mm-hmm. of X dollars. Yeah, and everyone gets the same amount of money. Yeah, and there's no incentive. For it. it doesn't matter who you, how, what volume you do with what what uh, product, you're always incentivized to do the right thing. But you're taking that hurdle away from the consumer, so the consumer is going to want to get the best advice without feeling the pain of the hip pocket. Well, then the insurance company is going to take the brokers out to Fiji for uh, a nice party, <laughs> or, or to Hawaii for a nice party. The old, the old soft commissions, yeah. yeah exactly. The soft commissions will kick in. Well, and we know that even in the medical profession that happens, right? There's been plenty of stories about that sort of stuff going on as well, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. you know incentives from drug companies, and it's yeah. it's a messy, messy, conflicted world. Mm-hmm. The buyer beware, and hopefully, government does the right thing. Modly full money. Mate, let's move on to another question. We had a question from a listener who's asking kind of a, a bit of a specific, uh, couple of specific questions. So uh, this, this listener asks about a being in the US, but opening a brokerage account for a 16-year-old Australian son. So lots and lots of complex stuff there, right, in terms of how we treat tax and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the couple of questions, um, he says, when it's time to transfer the account to my son, will I be able to just put it in his name and let him take control of it? I don't believe the company is in Australia because he's based in the US, so I'm not sure if this is possible. Now, this is there's a whole lot of tax implications here, and it's complicated by the fact that we think our correspondent Rod is a, is a US citizen, a US taxpayer, and his son seems to be an Australian resident, Australian taxpayer. Mm. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of complexity there. Um, I've got to say for what it's worth, again, we can't give independent tax advice. Um, we, this is one, Rob, where you really do need to go and speak to someone. Thanks for listening, by the way. Rod also said some lovely things about us, but I've cut it short just for the purposes of, of trying to keep the, the podcast a bit shorter. Um, but Rod does say all the lovely things, including that um, he listens to our podcast. And he's very happy he did. Um, so from that perspective, I've got to say, yes, yes, changing, uh, you know, 
there's nothing stopping uh, your son from having a US-based brokerage account. But the complexities between going from a US taxpayer to an Australian taxpayer account feels to me like a really, really complicated area. So I'm going to duck the question entirely because I don't claim to have really strong cross-border tax knowledge. Um, I know what it's like to be an Australian taxpayer with a US account. That's easy. But I don't know what tax or other implications the US government and or the Australian government would apply to that change of ownership, particularly because you're changing tax jurisdictions. So uh, firstly, the first thing I'd say is I'd get independent advice. The other thing I would say probably, Rod, is for what it's worth, he's 16 now. Once he's 16, that actually should – he's not a minor from a uh, – he won't be a minor soon from a from a tax perspective. It may be worth, depending on where you're opening it up, actually opening an account in his name with an international broker in the first place. And that's probably what I'd suggest. Um, it shouldn't be too difficult to do, though it may be problematic. Frankly, if it comes to it, you may want to just simply invest in your name in the U.S., and then when he becomes 18, simply selling um, those shares, you may have to pay some capital gains tax, but it's probably worth doing that. Alternatively, and then, and then investing, basically um, setting up a fund for him when he's when he's 18. Um, I think you can do that reasonably well. None of these are particularly wonderful options because international tax law, let alone local tax law, is, is incredibly difficult and complex. Uh, he does say, lastly, I was hoping you could recommend a couple of Australian stocks that are listed on US exchanges I could add to his portfolio. Um, so Rod, in this case, again, is in the US, but he wants to invest in some Australian companies for his son. Obviously, his son wants to know those companies. Unfortunately, Rod, the bad news is that most of the businesses that are big enough to have a US um, secondary listing aren't necessarily companies we'd recommend. The big banks, for example, all have, or I think all have US listings, but again, I wouldn't necessarily go down that path. Um, I'm not sure, Doc, if you know the answer to that, of which companies well, are trying I, to have I, US I, listings. I can name one. I don't know whether it is. It. Is, it, is it. So ResMed is yes, is sure. both a US listed company and an Australian listed company. Yes. I don't know whether it is primarily listed in the US and then they have uh, CDIs here or is the right. other way around. No, the, the primary listing is in the US. Okay, so the primary listing is in the US. I, uh, maybe, maybe you could buy, I'm not sure. Like, I mean, things like CSL and so, mm. so on might have. Mm. It's it's hard, yeah. I, I mean, I know the banks have ADRs, but I wouldn't go for the banks. Uh, so, look, I think this. Yeah, we, we're not giving you a very satisfactory answer, mate. We, we did want to cover it, even though we can't give you a wonderful answer. Just to kind of let you and our members know the complexities of, of international tax law, I would be inclined to save for him for the next couple of years, open an account in his name. Um, if you want to do something, a way to open it, for example, would be with interactive brokers who have a completely global platform. Um, it's a very difficult platform to use, but it might be one you want to go with. Another one, for example, is Charles Schwab, who has an office here. So there are ways of opening accounts with brokers. I know you're with uh, TD Ameritrade in the US, and I know you'd rather keep with that broker. I think, frankly, for your son, I would I would put money away now for the next couple of years and on his 18th birthday, open an account for him. We, we, we rarely say don't invest. In this case, I just think, uh, you know, for, for less than two years, because he's already 16, yeah. the, the, the trouble sense. hassle you're creating, I honestly would save some cash. Um, basically, put the money aside, transfer it to him or, or transfer it to his name after his 18th birthday and then invest accordingly, probably with interactive brokers because then you can access it from anywhere. Um, you can also set it up directly in his name in the US, but you can still control the account potentially. So lots of different options. Unfortunately, none of those perfect. Modly full money. All right, Doc, next question and probably the last question for today. Uh, hello, Fool Kings. I like that. I love that. Isn't that good? That Fool is Kings. awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. Why does this last? You should have first. Scott, I like it. Uh, <laughs> do, we, do, we reign, do we reign together? Is that, are we co-kings? Is that the idea? I don't know. Maybe you can be the king. I don't want to be the king. You can be the king. I have, I have no aspirations of grandeur, uh, mate. Trust I, me. You know, I, I don't need, really need to be the king. <laughs> but, but, right. I, but I like the, you know, we like the, the title. Thanks, yeah, I like the title. All right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Honorary Kings. Yeah. So King Doc, uh, Chris says, <laughs> I absolutely love the podcast. Listen every Saturday as I walk. Thank you, Chris. We hope you're keeping safe from traffic. Uh, living in Singapore. There we go. I am. Oh, mate, I've made this page too, too big so I can read it. I've lost the rest of the line. Here we go. Um, uh, living in Singapore. 
Cameron. I'm sharing with Aussie mates. There we go. Um, in January, I became a Motley Fool Share Advisor member. My question is how are dividends and franking credits applied when you are in an ETF? For example, the Australian uh, VAS, the Vanguard Australian Shares, or it says VGA, I don't know if VGA is the code, but he talks about ETFs and how do dividends and franking credits apply, how are they applied in that circumstance? So I think they're just carried forward normally, right? Like, I mean, the dividends are paid into the fund. The Correct. fund basically just forwards it, it through in, in their dividend and basically they collates all the, the franking and basically passes it on. Correct, correct. Uh, That's exactly it, the story. It, 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 yeah. But I, I don't know whether, it, you know, the, the Singaporeans actually can benefit from the franking or not. Yes, yeah, so that, yeah, that's right. So this is this is where it gets a bit complex, and you're exactly right, Doc. That was going to be my point, so I'm glad you picked it up. Uh, the, the dividends and franking are absolutely carried straight through to the taxpayer or the, the, the investor. You'll receive at the end of um, each year, you'll basically be receive a franked dividend, and those frankings are basically the, the franking credits passed through from the ETF to you. So that's the positive sign. As Doc says, if you are in if you're a Singapore taxpayer or a Singapore resident for tax purposes, to be more specific, then you won't be able to get those franking credits. Now, I will say, as I say, with all the stuff about franking credits, don't don't avoid an investment because you don't get the franking credits. Yes, they're great for Australian residents. They're wonderful. We love them. Um, but don't please don't avoid an investment just because you don't get the credits. If it's a great investment, it's a great investment regardless. Just because it's slightly less great than it would be if you're in Australia doesn't invalidate the idea as an investment. If you believe that the Australian market, for example, is going to go up meaningfully in the next five or ten years, then don't you know don't don't miss the forest for the trees here. Don't. Don't avoid an investment like that because of the franking credits. But yes, if you're a Singapore resident for tax purposes, unfortunately, the government's going to keep the franking credits. You'll still get the dividends, but the franking credits will go to waste. All right, Phil, thank you very much for listening to us. We hope you've enjoyed this first Earnings Palooza podcast. I have a feeling we may be doing another one next week. because we another week's worth of companies to report, and we'll bring you the highs and lows and hopefully something in between. And of course, as I said, we love your questions and comments. Please keep them coming. Uh, it gives us something to talk about, and frankly lets us know that we're answering the things that you want us to talk about, which is the most important part of this. Doc and I do like the sound of our own voices, but we hope you're enjoying it as well. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app, as I say every week. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends. It helps us become a little bit more better noticed. And while, yes, that's good for our business, we do this for free. We do it largely because we kind of love it. and We want people to get the investing bug, understand a little bit more about investing. And if the tone of our uh, emails from our listeners is anything to go by, hopefully we're delivering on that goal at least a little bit. Don't forget, you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.